problem with this because Jonah is what we've discovered is a nationalist, a nationalist, okay? So he loves his country, he loves his people, and he hates other countries. He, he does not look at other countries and see good in any way. He sees uh, only negative, only bad, only wicked when he looks to other people. So rather than going to Nineveh where God has instructed him to go, he has run the other way, or more specifically, I guess, he sailed the other way. So he is running away, sailing away from Nineveh, but more importantly, he is going away from God himself. And so last week we were in the point of the story where he's sailing away, but God hurls a ferocious storm upon the sea to intercept him. Now, we found that the sailors on the ship, they were doing everything possible to try and spare people on the boat, to spare possessions on the boat. They were trying to care for everyone and everything in the situation. Meanwhile, Jonah's down in the belly of the boat and he's sleeping, uncaring about what is going on. And so we found this really um, interesting dynamic that Jonah was sent to Gentiles, to non-Israelites to tell them about God. Okay? He refused to do that. And so what we saw last week was now Gentiles were going to Jonah to tell him to call out to his God. And so it's almost this nightmare scenario for him. He was supposed to go to Gentiles, tell them about God, didn't do it, so now they're coming to him and telling him to call out to his God. And that is where we're going to pick it up in verse 7 of chapter 1 this morning. And they, being the sailors, said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Okay, so in the ancient world, uh, most people believed that gods ruled over everything. Okay, and so the sailors, they conclude that the origin of this storm must be the result of of an offended God. Okay, somebody's done something to offend a God, and so uh, they set out to find out who is the offender on the boat. And it says here that they cast lots. Okay, so casting lots is essentially flipping a coin or rolling a die. Okay, that that's what casting lots is. And, and in this instance, it, it most likely involved them taking some stones, some flat stones, and probably flipping those and rolling those, or maybe drawing sticks of some sort. Now, it's interesting, this was done in a variety of situations throughout the Old Testament to determine God's will, okay? And so they do this, and the result of this is that Jonah is identified as the guilty party. And notice here, like, there's no hesitation here, right? Like, this is what they do. They're, they're, they're going to find out who the guilty party, this is the way they go about it, and when it's Jonah, they decide, like, that's legit. 
they're not, oh, I don't know if this really, like, is the answer or anything. That this is the answer. And I just found this really interesting. Just think about God, like, in some way, they're believing God's over this, right? Like, in this situation that all of us could look at, somebody rolling a die or something and say, this is so uh, happenstance, right? Like, we don't know what's going to happen here. And yet, we're reading this story where we're looking at these individuals who are doing this thing that we would say is completely chance, and they're saying it's not, okay? It's not just by chance. And so, I'm not going to go into that uh, significantly this morning, but I just wanted to raise that to say, this is going on, and I think that there's probably a lot of things in our lives that we might look at and say, that's just by chance, but, but yet God is over all of this. So after the lot falls to Jonah, the sailors then come to him, and they confront him with a bevy of questions, because they want to gain a better understanding of Jonah and of his situation. And so, they ask him these questions. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So in short, what the sailors are asking of Jonah is, who are you? They want to know who Jonah is. So what I want to do is I want to break down these questions a bit more to help us understand what it is that the sailors are searching after. Okay? So, the sailors are really asking about three main aspects of Jonah's life. His purpose in life, his place in life, and his people. Okay, so we'll go through these one by one. They begin by asking about his occupation. What is your occupation, they ask him. And with this question, the sailors are trying to get at the mission of his life, or the purpose that drives Jonah. And this is how we function today as well, right? I mean, when we meet someone, we will ask them or they will ask us about what we do or what they do for work. And, and there's this connection between the work that they do and the purpose in their life. Our society makes a correlation between what we do for work and who we are as a person. For, for right or wrong, that, that is how we function many times. I was thinking about this uh, this past week as it relates to some of the different generations that we have in our society. Okay, so someone from the baby boomer generation uh, would oftentimes seek a job, a, a good job that they might hate, right? But if it's a good job, and, and it allows them to provide well for their family or to give them a comfortable life, they will stick with it. They'll go through it, even if they are miserable. The idea of providing well financially for their family or to, to have comfort in their lives materially is a value for boomers. It speaks to kind of the purpose of their life. Now, for millennials speaking generally here, that there's oftentimes a strong desire to work for a company that cares about the social issues that we're passionate about, that you're passionate. I mean, there's a lot of millennials here, so I can say you in many respects, right? What you are passionate about, you want to work for a company that, that's in line with that. It's very important that you love your job, much more so than in previous generations. They, they might just stick it out and, 
and do it because it allows them to provide well for their family. But for many millennials, they, they want to enjoy, they want to be passionate about what they are doing. And, and this speaks to one's purpose in life. And I was thinking about this for myself as well. And this whole idea of, of work and purpose uh, resonates well for me. So when people ask me about my job, and I can actually give them the full story of how I got to this point right here, uh, that they will get a sense of my purpose in life, because when they get some of the details, they might at the end of the conversation be like, wait, so you left multiple better paying jobs in the corporate world to get a master's degree so that you could be paid less money? That, that's what you did, and then you left all paying jobs whatsoever with three young kids in your house so that you could then ask people to give you money and support you so that you could start a church that didn't have any people or money or building whatsoever. And at this point, like, the sanity of myself is questioned, right? Like, wh what were you thinking? Uh, but even though my sanity might be questioned, there's oftentimes the purpose becomes a little more clear for people. The sailors are asking Jonah about his job because they want to know what drives him. What is his purpose for living? What is his mission in life? And in that day and age, every profession had its own gods, okay? So they're inquiring, for whom do you live? For whom do you do all that you do? For whom do you do all the work that you do? Okay, from asking about his occupation, then they move to ask Jonah, where do you come from? What is your country? The sailors are now asking about where he's from, his place, okay, his place in life. And again, where Jonah is from would dictate what gods are in play in that day and age. Where we're from has an immense impact on our formation of who we are. It speaks to maybe where we find rest or where we feel at home or where we belong to some degree. But so, so you think about someone who's come to America, okay? Maybe they came to America for a better life or because they wanted to provide for their family in some way. They may be driven to succeed, to make money, right? A and many of us might look at somebody and be like, well, you've, you've kind of arrived here, and so now you're working hard so that you can be established, so that, that you can then build your life here. But, but someone in that situation might be like, no, I just, I want to make money so that I can get to a spot in life so that I can then return to that place where I feel I belong. That is my place. That is home for me. So we've got purpose, we've got place, and lastly, we've got people. They ask Jonah, of what people are you? Our family, our ethnicity, our political affiliation, these social constructs speak to who our people are. These are questions that we ask and answer oftentimes still today. But in our modern context, we are oftentimes 
ask these questions as a way to express ourselves, right? Like someone will ask these questions and then because of our individualism, it's like it's a chance for us to say, this is who I am. But, but that's not what's going on with Jonah here at all. The sailors are angry, right? They're in the midst of this storm that they feel like is going to take their lives. They are trying to figure out purpose, place, and people for the fact that they, they can know how to proceed in this situation. They are stressed, and they are asking these questions to understand who Jonah is. They want to know his identity, because in the ancient world, this is the same as asking, who do you worship? There's a correlation between the identity of somebody, who they are, and who it is that they worship. Who someone is, is inextricably linked with what they worship. Now, many of us have grown up in this context where atheism has become very commonplace, right? And so this idea that these two things would be linked, what we worship and who we are, that almost becomes an afterthought in our society. A and so when, when someone who would subscribe to uh, atheism, they'd be like, no, there's, there's no connection. Those are completely separate things there. And I think that even that can rub off on us as well, and, and we can fail or struggle to see the connection uh, regarding who someone is and what it is that they worship. A and so we, in some ways, maybe we see, no, the connection there is no longer relevant at all. And I would say that is a fatal mistake. For us to not be able to see or understand that those things are still very connected is a fatal mistake for us. So people may not believe in the goddess of Aphrodite anymore, right? Who was the goddess of love and beauty. But all we need to do is to listen to a song on the radio or to watch commercials and to see our infatuation with love and beauty to see how many people are defined by love, what they do love or what they don't love or, or what loves them or beauty. People are defined by this all the time, how we look. We don't need to believe in the Roman god Mercury, who is the god of commerce, to see that money can be a god for us very easily. W and we, we oftentimes think about, well, uh, we're not like getting a pile of money and bowing down to it, right? Th that's not what's going on here. We don't need to do that in order to worship money. Everyone who lives, which means everyone who is in here right now, seeks to gain significance in some way. We seek to be identified by something or by someone. And this is what the sailors are trying to understand about Jonah. They are not just asking, who are you? But they are asking him, who are you? Who do you look to to save you? Or what do you look to, Jonah, to save you? Or whom do you give ultimate allegiance to? So they pose the question, and now we get Jonah's insightful response to them. Now, there are times in the Bible when the order of something is really critical, okay? And I would say the order of Jonah's answers 
to these questions is crucial because he doesn't answer the questions in the order that they are asked, in the order that we would expect him to answer the questions. Now, when, when we're in a group setting nowadays and we're introducing ourselves and we're asked to like give our name and our occupation or our hobby or our favorite ice cream or whatever, what we oftentimes do is we follow that order, right? Like this is question one, this is question two, three, and four, and we just go down the list. And, and that's how we oftentimes proceed. What we find here with Jonah is that he's answering the last question first. A and we might think, oh, that's not a big deal. But it is. As readers, we need to understand that this is the question that Jonah really wanted to answer. This is the information that he yearned to communicate to those who were asking the question. He said, I am a Hebrew. I am a Hebrew. And that is the answer to the last question that he was asked. Well, Hebrew is basically another name for Israelite. This is what Jonah is proud of. Okay? This is what he wants other people to know about him. A and for all of us, we have those things that we want people to know about us. Right? Maybe you're double-jointed or, like, you can do the splits and, like, that's the party trick you always want to pull out when you go to a party or, or maybe you can change your own oil right and and like that's what you want people to know well, whatever it is for us like we always have things that we want people to know about us things that we're doing or things that we've accomplished for Jonah he wants other people to know that he's an Israelite he believes with every fiber in his being, that Israel is superior to other nations. And so that when others would look at him, that they would have to look up to look at him because he looks down on other people. And so this is what he leads with. He gets in a conversation. This is what he wants to lead with and let people know, first and foremost, I am a Hebrew. And what we tell others about ourselves says a lot about us. It says a lot about who we are. It says about a lot about our identity, about whose we are. When we talk with others, what do we want them to know? What do you want people to know about you? Whether you're meeting them for the first time or you have a deep relationship with them, what do you want people to know about you? that you're funny, that you're good at something, that you, you're good at asking good questions and listening to somebody, that you don't need to talk yourself, maybe that you're humble. What is your identity based on or in? What devastates you? What do you lead with when you meet other people? or when you engage in a conver conversation with others, what do you want people to know first and foremost about you? Jonah continues in his answer. For I am a Hebrew, and he says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I it's like he knew they were asking for this information, 
right? They, they, he's saying, this is my God. And as I read this, knowing everything else I know about the book of Jonah and about Jonah himself, it seems mostly like a taunt that he is giving to these sailors. Jonah states that his God possesses power over absolutely everything, including creative power, right? He's the God over the seas and the land. Notice how Jonah talks about this God in a sense when he says he's the one who made the sea. Okay, this is a true statement that Jonah is making. But something should not be adding up for us as we read this about Jonah. Jonah says that he fears the God who made the sea. But then why would this God hurl this ferocious storm right at him as he's sailing on it? Now, it's entirely possible that Jonah thinks he fears God, right? But what we should understand or we should see is his actions do not indicate a reverence for God. So when we see Jonah in this spot, it should cause us to tap the brakes in our own lives as well. Maybe when we think about, oh, I, I love God to this certain degree, or I believe the gospel to this certain degree, maybe, maybe we don't believe the gospel to the extent that we really think that we do. Maybe we don't love God in a way that in our minds we think we love him. That maybe there's this disconnect that's going on. So check this out about Jonah. As he seeks to escape God's call to go to Nineveh, okay, he is sailing across the sea, the same sea that the God he supposedly fears made. So what's he doing with God? He's using it, right? He's saying, I fear the God who made this sea, and I'm going to use this sea to escape that God. He's using God. He's just taking his stuff, his trinkets, using it for the things that he wants to use it for and not actually revering God, not trusting him, not fearing him at all. And so the sailors see what's going on here. They are afraid. They now understand that this storm is the result of Jonah fleeing his God. Okay, so I want to stop right there, okay? That kind of gives us a framework or a basis for these four verses. And so in the time that we have remaining, I want to do some work to let these verses preach the good news of Jesus to us, to let these verses preach the gospel to us. So I have two points of gospel application for us this morning. The first one is Jesus came to give us a new identity. This is why he came to us, to give us a new identity. So Genesis 1 says, we are made in God's image, okay? Humanity is made, is created in God's image. This means that we are created not to stand alone, not, not just to do our own thing or be our own selves. We are created for the express purpose to image somebody else, to reflect God himself. This is what we are made for. Not just for ourselves. We are made. You are here because God has designed you to reflect 
him. And here's the reality. This is what we're made for. We are made so that we might image God. And if we don't, if our eyes are fixated elsewhere, we will reflect something or someone else. When we chase after things other than Jesus, when we worship something else, we are telling a lie to those who look at our lives. We are not giving an accurate picture of what the gospel is, of what Jesus came to do. And, and this is what the fracture of sin causes. It causes us to live for something or someone else. Even after we're saved, right? Even after we're believing the gospel, there's still this pull for sin to, to divert our eyes to something else. The fracture of sin still affects us significantly, and, and it creates devastating results. For Jonah, he loved his nation in an undying way. He loved his nation. And this form of worship caused him to run away from Nineveh. He knows that God is a God of love, right? But he's saying, I want that God of love to extend his love just to me and my people. I don't care about those other people. In fact, I hate them. And I don't want them to know God's love. But that's what he's saying. And this is how sin fractures us. So we live in an individualistic society, okay? And because of this, we are encouraged to dream our dreams, to look inside of ourselves, and to determine who we want to be. So everything in our culture tells us, you decide what your identity will be. You come up with a dream, and you go chase that dream. This is rugged individualism is what it is. And, and so what I want to say is this robust individualism is not robust at all. It will not work. It will fail us. So let me give a few practical reasons why I'm saying it will fail us. First of all, it will cause us to have multiple identities. So we are unable to build our identity on just one thing. We just can't. Okay? We'll, we'll find a person that we love. And we may orient our lives around that, but we will get bored with that. And so then we will, we will look at a job. A and then we might orient our lives around that, but then maybe we'll burn out with that. And then we'll find a hobby or whatever it is. And so then what ends up happening is we have to create multiple identities, right? We have to chase after other things. And so we become confused. We have a confused identity. And, and what this then creates is instability. Our identity is now unstable. If we look inside of ourselves for our identity to figure out who we are, what we're going to find is that we're always changing, right? Continuously changing. And, and our affections every day, right? Or just our emotions, day in and day out, they go up and down throughout the day. Th they are not stable in any way for us. And when we feel the uncertainty inside of ourselves, what we'll decide is, all right, we've got to steal ourselves down here, okay? We've got to make ourselves 
into something. He's got to make this happen. And so we put this crushing pressure on ourselves to become something that we know we can't sustain. And, and we may get after this. We may work really hard after to make ourselves, to create our identity. But this may actually kill us. It may actually kill us. Uh, if it doesn't kill us, it will exhaust us. Okay? I've got this quote from Madonna. Uh, I've shared this quote before. But it really helps to paint this picture. All of my w millennials, she was a cultural icon in the 90s. Okay? All right. So all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. This is what it means for us to try and create our own identity. We will become just like Madonna. We get to a certain mountain, and then we'll see there's a greater mountain. And we now have to go and scale that mountain. And it will exhaust us. It might kill us for some of us. Or maybe, maybe some of us are, are really strong, right? We've got type A personalities. And so we can do this and we can make this happen for years at a time, okay? But what will end up happening is if we're successful with this, is we'll become exclusive, Okay? Our friends will disappear. The hole inside of us for relationship will grow larger because we can do something that other people cannot do. We are better than them. And any identity that is achieved rather than received will cause us to look down on others because we can attain something that the person next to us cannot so Jesus came to give us a new identity. Jesus came to give us a new name. We need someone outside of us to name us and to tell us who we are. Okay? Now, this idea, what I just said, that we need someone outside of us to name us and to tell us who we are, that idea in our culture is abhorrent. You name yourself, our culture says. You, you decide your dreams. You do it for yourself. But Jesus says otherwise. He came to name us, to give us a new identity. And to do this, Philippians 2 says, he made himself nothing. Jesus made himself nothing so that you might get a new identity he made himself absolutely nothing. There was enough sturdiness in his identity that flows from his father that he was willing to make himself absolutely nothing. He is, he was and he is our only hope. Jesus comes, makes himself nothing, and he dies for us. And in his death, what he's doing is he's 
purchasing us. He's paying our debt, the debt that our sin has created for us. He is paying that off for us. And then he says, he doesn't say, go and be just like, don't, go and accomplish the same things I have accomplished. He doesn't say that. He says, believe. Believe. John 1.12 says, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We become children of God by believing. Not by doing, but by believing. And 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, when we become God's children, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So hear that. You are not your own. How does that contrast with our culture? Right? Go build your dream and achieve it. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. And the price was God's blood shed on a brutal cross for you. Now here's the trick. How do we get Jesus' death down to a personal level for us? How do we remind ourselves that he is the one that comes to us and he gives us a new name? That's what we have to wrestle with. That's what we have to work out day in, day out, while we continually call ourselves back to the gospel so that we can see this is who Jesus is. This is what he has done for us. And then let his love shape and transform our hearts. That's ground zero, okay? For the Christian life, we have to go there, and we have to go back to ground zero over and over and over to be reminded of this is who Jesus is. This is what he has done for us so that you might have a new identity okay so then if jesus has come to give us a new identity the intention is that your identity would be in christ that your identity would be in christ that this would be primary this would be pervasive in your life I am in Jesus. I am his child. I am saved by him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about him making us a new creation. Okay? We were dead in sin. We need Jesus to come to us and to make us new, to recreate us. And so what this means, the Bible gives a number of different pictures of, of what he's doing as he makes us his children or um, as he saves us and gives us a new identity. So one of the pictures is we are sheep with a shepherd, okay? But, but not just any shepherd who maybe just like wanders off sometimes or he takes lots of naps and, and doesn't really watch closely his sheep. This is, we are, Christians are sheep with a faithful shepherd. When one wanders off, he chases the one to go and rescue them. Another really powerful picture that we get of, of Jesus giving us his identity is that of uh, family. He says that he comes to adopt us as his children. We were not his children, but when he gives us a new identity, we become his children. We are welcomed 
into his family. We were once a people without a family, and now he calls us in to his family. We become his. First and foremost, his. Not even the families that we have here, don't have here. First and foremost, we are part of God's family. And this is a gift that is received, okay? It's not a gift that's earned, okay? If it's a gift that's earned, if we have to be something or do something, work hard enough to stay in the family, that's not good news, right? Because then we're always wondering, am I doing the thing that's going to get me kicked out of my family? This is a gift that's given, that's received. It's not earned from God. We get it because we believe. We are no longer our own then. We take on the name of another. And, and in this, so self-esteem, okay? Big deal in our modern culture, go to Barnes and Noble or any big bookstore, right? Like, the whole point is, like, how can we build your self-esteem? Our self-esteem now comes from someone we esteem, okay? And, and that's true with anything. Your self-esteem comes from one you esteem. But in Jesus, we're esteeming someone who will never fail us, who will never leave us, who will never forsake us, who will never stop loving us. Our identity must be rooted in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. No one else, nothing else. When we go to other places, other things, other people, we will have an identity crisis, okay? And our identity crisis will result because we are putting our hope in things that are lesser than Jesus. And it will, without fail, happen. We will be disillusioned. Our self-esteem will fail if we put our hope in something lesser than Jesus. So the whole of this passage of these four verses, it, it really presses us to ask identity questions. Who are you? Not, not who you project to other people, but deep down, who are you? Maybe more appropriately, whose are you? What is the purpose that you live for day in and day out? What drives you? Jonah needed to let his ethnic identity die. It needed to die. He needed to see that that was not viable, that it, it couldn't be that important to him. What is that for you? What's that part of your identity that needs to die, that you need to let go of, that holds way too much sway in your life? I was thinking about this this week, and I mean, I could go to a lot of things, um, but one thing that really hit me hard was the idea of seeing my kids grow up. See, I love my kids. I want to walk my daughters down the aisle. I want to have deep relationship with them. I want to have many years with them. There's also this tendency in the midst of that to say, Jesus, don't come. Jesus, don't take me. And what the gospel says is that Jesus is better. 
Jesus is better. And like children need to see that. They need to hear that. They need to know that. Jesus is far, and, and not just like a smidge better, right? Worlds apart. Jesus is so much better than everything and everyone else. And if not, if not, like things are just going to get jacked up. If our kids don't understand this, things are going to not go well. We have what uh, one author talks about, just like a shallow Christian identity. So I want to read this quote uh, that I found from Tim Keller um, this past week. A shallow Christian identity explain why professing Christians can be racist and greedy materialists, addicted to beauty and pleasure, or filled with anxiety and prone to overwork. All this comes because it is not Christ's love, that the, but the world's power, approval, comfort, and control that are the real roots of our self-identity. If it's not Jesus, we might be up some days, but we're definitely going to be down other days. If we're looking for power, for control, for money, if we're looking to anything other than Jesus for our identity, it's going to destroy us. It will ruin us. And the thing is, in the moments when things go really well, we'll tend to think, oh, I can do it. Like, this is enough. But the bottom's going to fall out. It will fall out eventually. And here's the great thing about finding our identity in Christ. In Christ, we are known. Okay? A lot of times we don't want to be known because what we hide is really messy. We are known in all of our mess and we are accepted. It's the beauty of the gospel. We are known in the messiest of our messes by Jesus. And he still is running after us. He's still pursuing us because he loves us with an undying love. And when we find our identity in Jesus, it's not like everything's perfect, right? But in an increasing way, what we'll find is we'll grow to weather storms of rejection we'll find that it's okay for others to think that we're a little weird, we're a little off, we're a little awkward. We'll be okay with those realities. We'll be emboldened to confess the things about us that we are most unwilling to reveal. Isn't that interesting? The things that we really don't want to share with other people are the things that we most need to share with other people. And as we find our identity in Jesus, as we understand He accepts me, even though he knows this about me, will be emboldened to confess that with others and in that then embolden them that they might find freedom in confessing their sin or their mess as well. We'll grow in making sacrifices and giving priority to building up what matters to Jesus, which is his church. We'll orient our lives more and more around his church. Our lives will be about advancing the gospel, not advancing Kevin's kingdom, but advancing Jesus' kingdom and what he is all about. Sharing ourselves with others then will result 
in sharing Jesus because that's just natural. That's who we are. That's our identity. So if you're a Christian, this is the call for us that we would be found in Christ, that we would yearn for nothing more because there is nothing more. That is what we need. That is what we have been created for, to know Jesus and to be known by Him and in that to reflect Him to others. If you're a non-Christian, this is an invitation. This is where joy is completed. Not just found, but joy is completed. This is where we're set free from whatever it is that we feel enslaved to. We're, We're set free in and through Jesus. This is where hope becomes constant. Even in the midst of grief, that we can still be filled with hope. There's a song that we sing. We're not singing it this morning, but there's a song that we sing from time to time here at Center Church. In Christ alone, my hope is found. In Christ alone. No one else. Nothing else. May that be our anthem. That in Christ alone, our hope will be found. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for these reminders that we can get from a story that was written thousands of years ago that many of us might just read and say, oh, that's an interesting story. And yet there's all these layers to this story and it's so instructive to us as well. And so God, I pray that that would be true for us in these moments this morning. I pray that you would help us to see how we are building our identity on things that are paper thin, on things that will just blow away when the wind changes someday. I pray that as we have attachments to those identities, that you would set us free from them, that you would cut those things that bind us, the ropes that bind us to them. And I pray that in the midst of this, Jesus, that you would help us to see that uh, our identity, when, it, when it's built in something else, lesser than you, that it won't last. That on the other side of the coin is you. Someone who will not fail us. Someone who is sturdy. And someone who has demonstrated that by coming to us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our rebellion, you come to us and you say, I love you. As we spit at you and hate you, you say, I love you. Come to me. Be my child. You say, mine. And so God, help us to see the beauty of the gospel, that it is the greatest news in the world. Give us courage to turn from that which will only disappoint us and to turn towards you, the one who will never disappoint us. Help us to turn from the things that will damn us and will kill us and turn to you, the one who saves. Help us to turn from that which enslaves us and turn towards you who sets us free. God, you are what we need in these moments 
and in the moments that will fill our week that's upcoming. So give us a vision about who you are, of what you have come and what you have done, how you have come and what you've done for us. God, fill us with hope, with the hope of the gospel. And I pray as we sing these songs, as we observe the Lord's Supper, that we would be reminded of your glory, that there would be a sense of sturdiness in our hearts and in our souls because we're looking at you, we're seeing you are better, we're seeing you, you are where life and hope is found, and we give ourselves, we don't just see it, but we give ourselves over to you. So God, accomplish that in these moments for the glory of your name and for the good and the joy of your people. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.